Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel South London. You can visit us at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org. Acts 21 and Acts 22. So if I ask you to turn to your Bibles, to the pages, the appropriate pages, then you can follow me as I read. Um, This reading comes from the ESV, starting with Acts 21, starting with Paul goes to Jerusalem. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Koz, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and we went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy and we greeted the brothers and we stayed with them for one day. On the next day we departed and we came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said thus says the Holy Spirit This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart, for I am not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and we went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have, they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from that which has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled, 
and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone, everywhere, against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together and they seized Paul and they dragged him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him! As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And Paul said, and he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus, in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed towards Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way, I drew near to Damascus. About noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go to Damascus, and there you'll be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight and at that very hour I received my sight and I saw him and he said the God of our fathers appointed to know his pointed you to know his will to see the righteous one and to hear the voice from his mouth for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard and now why do you wait rise and be baptized and wash away your sins calling on his name when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a deep trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, 
I imprisoned and I beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out what they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And Paul said, Yes. The tribune answered, But I bought this citizenship for a large sum. And Paul said, But I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately, and the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. Now, in the same way that Paul is in a hurry to get to Jerusalem, we're in a hurry to finish the book of Acts by Easter. (laughs) Hence the lengthy reading of the text today. Shall we pray together? Heavenly Father, we, we praise you because you are God. You are God and and we are your people. How comforting that is for us to be reminded. And Father, yet in the midst of such great encouragement, we also have to face great difficulty while we are here on this earth on mission. And Father, we were reminded last night that we were buried, therefore, with Jesus in our baptism. That means that A part of us has to die. I pray that you would help us further come to understand that today. For the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Now, if I were to ask you, what does Biggie Smalls and the Apostle Paul have in common? What did they, what did, King Biggie, see me with his crown. What the, what the Biggie Smalls and Paul the Apostle, now Paul obviously doesn't look like that, we're not sure what he looks like, right? They never had cameras back in the first century. But what do they have in common? Well, both of them are documented to have said the same thing. And that is that they're both ready to die. Albeit, for different reasons. Biggie, the title of his first album, Ready to Die. The Apostle Paul, we just heard him say it here in Acts chapter 21. Biggie, that was his first album. And it was the only album before he actually died. His second album came out, I think it was two weeks after he died, after he got shot. And his second album was called, check it, Life After Death. All these biblically themed album titles. And it's pretty consistent. I suspect it never had nothing to do with him because he was dead, right? But his third album was called Born Again. Ready to Die, 1994. Life After Death, 97, and Born Again in 1999. There's a song on one of his compilation albums that came out a lot, a lot later. Um, it was on an album called Duets, where, he, it, where he, they had taken his past recordings and kind of joined him up with different artists. 
Um, on there he's got a, a song called Hold Your Head. And some of the lyrics are so disgusting that I cannot repeat them in public. In the first verse he talks about wanting to go to hell. Literally. Specifically. Straight up. He says, he says I don't want to go to heaven with the goody goodies in paradise. You might have heard me mention it before. He wants to tote or carry guns and shoot dice in hell. That's what he'd rather do. And then he says also in that same first verse, all my life I've been considered as the worst, lying to my mother, even stealing out of her purse. Crime after crime, from drugs to extortion, I know my mother wish she'd had an abortion. And that's the first verse. The second verse is just as twisted. That's Biggie's lyrics. Paul, on the other hand, didn't do any albums, but he definitely had bars. He definitely had lyrics. He wrote, he wrote letters or books, if you like, 13 of them found in the New Testament. In one of them, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 through 8, he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure, or the time of my death, has come. I fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. See, Paul's going to get a crown, very dissimilar to Biggie's crown. He said, a crown which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. In Philippians 1.21, Paul says those well-known words. He says, for me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Both men said that they are ready to die but both with completely different reasons and perspectives. We'll focus today more fully on Paul's perspective, I'm sure you'll be happy to hear. <laughs> you may remember from the last time when we were in chapter 20 <clears throat> that Paul is coming to the end of his third missionary journey. He's just been in Miletus spending time and speaking at length to the elders from Ephesus. And he's been encouraging them to remain faithful as he commends them to God and to the word of his grace. He, along with his companions, they leave for Tyre in Syria. Oh, actually, Tyre is in Lebanon. But they travel from where he's met with these elders at Ephesus en route to Jerusalem. And after arriving there in Tyre, that's just on the coast, still there in Lebanon, after arriving there, verse 4 says, and having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And check it. And through the Spirit, they, that is the disciples who were there, were telling Paul what? They were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. You can get involved, you know. Don't be shy. What were they telling Paul? Not to go to Jerusalem. Which could sound as if it wasn't God's will for Paul to go to Jerusalem. Can you see that? And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Which could seem a bit confusing. Is this a contradiction? If, t if someone told you something through the Spirit, shouldn't you obey them? What would you do? Well, Paul ignores this admonition. Undeterred, he leaves after praying with these families and boards a ship in verse 6, which sails. It sails along the coast, as we just mentioned, from Tyre, going towards Jerusalem. I don't know if you can see that on the map. And he's heading south, undeterred. And he continues 
towards Jerusalem. Verse 8. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven. Do you remember we met him back in chapter 5? And he stayed with him. Now, Philip had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Philip had a great legacy. Four daughters who loved Jesus. Now listen carefully, because we're going to see something similar take place again. Verse 10. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Now remember, down is up, because Jerusalem is south, and it's higher. So you go down from Jerusalem now to this place where Paul is staying in Caesarea. He came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit. Thus says who? This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. What would be your advice to Paul at this point? At face value, it could seem as if not, not once, but twice, Paul is being warned not to go to Jerusalem. By who? By his brethren? Just by some of the disciples? By God. Now this sounds confusing. See, what would be your advice at this point to Paul? Well, maybe we, we wouldn't be brave enough to get involved. We probably would look and we'd say, well, he's, he's the Apostle Paul. Surely he must know. We probably would end up saying nothing. But these in Samaria, as with those a moment ago in Tyre, they were convinced that Paul was not to go to Jerusalem. That's clear, wouldn't you agree? Look at verse 12. When we heard this, that is that Paul was, is going to be bound hand and feet. The prophet has just communicated that. It's confirmed what's already been said. When we heard this, we, notice the we, and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. These in Samaria, along with, check it, even Paul's companions. Remember, Luke, the writer of this book, he joins in, doesn't he? Because he says, we and the people. This is all of, all of Paul's boys begging him. Because they evidently see what's coming. And in chorus, they all say, Paul, you must not go to Jerusalem. Now, does this sound familiar? Have you ever heard something similar? Someone else was going to Jerusalem and was strongly not encouraged. <laughs> not strongly discouraged. Strongly rebuked this person by a very close, genuine friend. I wonder if I could get some water, fellas. In Matthew chapter 16... Starting at verse 21, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go where? To Jerusalem and what? Seems like this theme, it just won't go away, will it? Go to Jerusalem and suffer a few things? Hey. I don't even want to go on. And suffer many things. And look who it's from. From the elders and the chief, his own people, and the scribes, and be what? And be killed. And be killed. And on the third day be raised. And Peter, one of his best friends, took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. <laughs> okay, Peter seems to know better than Jesus. Thank you. Verse 23, but he, that is Jesus, turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. 
You, notice, you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Then Jesus goes on to say to his first century disciples exactly what he would say to us, his 21st century disciples, last week in verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Same place, synoptically, as Mark chapter 8 last week. Now, if you didn't hear the message from last week, then you ain't got a clue what we're talking about. You're completely lost. It was God's will that Jesus go to Jerusalem. Not to preserve his life, but to die. And Jesus, unlike Peter, was ready to die. Now what will be Paul's response to the warnings from fellow believers, to the warnings from friends, to the warnings from his best friends and traveling companions? Verse 13, then Paul answered, what are you doing? I mean, he was much more gentle than Jesus, right? <laughs> He's like, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For, for I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Wow. He sounds just like Jesus. Completely convinced of God's will. Verse 14, and since he wouldn't be persuaded, we ceased. And what did they say? In the face of what didn't seem like God's will, it was completely, utterly, and entirely God's will. They say, let the will of the Lord be done. Not my will, but yours be done, Lord. We hear echoes of that from the Gospels. Scholars say that this was actually a test from God to see if Paul would remain faithful. Because God had already clearly articulated his will, hadn't he? Look back at the previous chapter, chapter 20. If you've got your Bible, if you haven't, it's just up on the screen. Acts chapter 20, just the previous chapter. Verse 22 to 24, Paul speaking, and now behold, I am going to Jerusalem. Constrained, what, by his own determination? No, constrained by the Spirit. Not knowing what will happen to me there in, an, in a complete and total sense. <laughs> he finds out from Agabus, doesn't he? Except that the Holy Spirit, the same, the same individual, the same member of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Paul knew that Jerusalem wouldn't be easy. And the temptation would be to preserve his life. But he didn't. Verse 24, he says in Acts chapter 20, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul was crystal clear as to the will of God for his life. And nothing, nothing deferred him. I wish I could tell you what God's specific will is for your life. I wish I could. But I can't. But do you know, even if I could tell you God's will for your life specifically, 
You know, that wouldn't guarantee that you would do it. Knowing it is one thing, doing it is another. Now, I'm not talking about the general will of God. See, the general will of God for all Christians in all places at all times. That's the general will of God. Like, it's in 1 Thessalonians 5, praying without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances, abstaining from every form of evil. This is the general will of God for all of us. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the specific will of God. It's not God's specific will for you to be married to my wife. Right? That's God's will for me. That's specific. What you need to figure out is God's specific will for you. It's not easy. As we see here, finding out God's specific will can be very, very tricky. It can be very confusing. But you can rest assured that God will show you if you seek him. Listen to what the Lord said to Israel when they were in a very desperate and unclear situation. He says in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, through to verse 14, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope, he says to Israel. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you. And I would argue that in order for you to find the will of God for your life, it will call for a willingness on your part in some way to die. Because if there's one thing that you and I have been promised in this life, it's a cross. And it will involve denying yourself. And it will involve, to some degree, losing your life. It will mean setting your mind on the things of God and not on the things of men. Therefore, you will not be able to, to do this that is identify God's will for your life without a good working knowledge of the Bible. I have to say it, but it's true. There are no shortcuts. No shortcuts to the successful Christian life. Don't believe the hype. And don't go waste your money on them books telling you about six steps to the successful. Don't. There are no shortcuts. How many of you have friends or have had friends in the past that have come and told you God's will for your life? <laughs> they just don't know God's will for their life, but they can come and tell you God's will for your life, right? My encouragement to you, both of you, both of those individuals, is to seek God with all your heart. I mean, that's how I found out that I was supposed to marry my wife. Seek God with all your heart. Because I knew that that was going to be an important part of the specific will of God for my life. I did it then. I've never done it since. I went away on a seven-day fast. Now, this was just me. This might not be you. You may be able to step into marriage confidently. You know what I mean? But I was in a place, possibly like Paul's friends here, where I was a little bit confused. And my concern wasn't, man, I'm scared to get married like, you know what I mean? I'm not, I'm not willing to do this like marriage is not a good thing. I was willing, but I was terrified. You know what I mean? And I had to come to a place where I, I was able to identify the will of God for my life. And I tell you, 
What wasn't going to help me was asking five or six different people, as close as they were, as much as they loved me, what they thought. Now, I can ask that question. Sometimes that can be helpful. But I know fundamentally, at the end of the day, is me have to make that decision because when I don't make that bed, I'm me have to go lie down in a hit. Right? Literally. <laughs> so, I'm just telling you, for, for, for me, you know what I mean? I'd encourage you, with regards to the specific will of God for your life, seek the Lord with all your heart. Because you're not going to know what to deny either yourself from, or you're not going to know what to say no to. And remember, we're not talking about sinful things. We talked about this in community group last, last Thursday. You know what I'm saying? If, 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 if I'm confronted with an evident sinful temptation, I know that's not the will of God. It's never going to be the will of God for me to sin to fulfill the will of God. So that's clear. I mean, but that's a big problem for some, right? Just turning away from sinful things. That's standard. That's basic. But we need to move to that place where we're not just saying no because it's sin, like Joseph. How can I do this great evil and sin against God? But we need to get to that point where, we're, where sometimes we're saying no to, to things that are good. To, to things that may necessarily be okay. The other Christian believers in all good conscience are saying that's a good thing, go for it. Seek the Lord with all your heart. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6, right? Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him. And the next part's a promise. He will direct your paths. Do you want to know what God has to say? Well, in conjunction with that, you need to know what God has already said. There are no shortcuts. You can't do this without getting into your Bible. I don't even know if you're a regular attender here. If you are, I would hope that you have your Bible. Because I'm just realizing how quickly time is passing by. I'm 43 years old. 44 this year, looking to continue my education, like theologically, I potentially may not come out of school till I'm 50. Isn't it? You laugh. And you look laugh, it's all right. It's all, you can, I'm not laughing. <laughs> I said to Pastor E yesterday, time is moving. Can you believe it? It's nearly Christmas already, 2011. There's chatting about Olympics, and I was like, man, that's, tight. that's decades away, like 2012. It's nearly here already. Time is moving, and I need to get moving. <laughs> Otherwise, what's Pastor P? You give me the eye. See, you need to know what God has already said. That's going to help you to know what he's saying to you individually. Jesus did it, and Paul did it. Biggie didn't do it. And the question is, will you do it? That's the question. Will you look at what God has already said in order to help you to identify what he is saying to you personally? The future success of, of, of what God has called you to do depends on it. Verse 15. After these things, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. See? Without knowing God's will, verse 15 wouldn't be in the Bible. When they arrived, Paul and his companions are greeted and warmly welcomed by the church, including James and the other elders in verse 17 and 18. Paul shares all that God has been doing in his ministry among the Gentiles. Then because Jerusalem is predominantly filled with Jews, 
as opposed to Gentiles, which is where kind of Paul's ministry has been going, it's suggested to Paul that he now considers them, that is, the Jews, who are very zealous for the law of Moses, and there are thousands of them. And apparently there's a rumor that Paul, apparently, disregards the words of Moses. But it is a rumor. So verse 16 through to 26, Paul agrees to take a seven-day vow of purification along with four other men, just to kind of quench things. They see Paul coming, they're like, wait a minute, there he is. Oh, but look, hmm, he's actually fulfilling, you know what I'm saying, the law of Moses in that he's been purified, going into the temple, offering up sacrifices. Now, this is not something that Paul had to do, but he chose to do it in order not to be a stumbling block to the Jews. It's very much like we saw in Acts chapter 15, when the Gentiles were encouraged to abstain from certain things in order not to unnecessarily offend the Jews. Remember when we did that? It's the same principle. Verse 27, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from where? Asia. These are some of the sour Jews who Paul had left behind in Turkey. Probably from Lystra, Iconium, and Derbe, where they stoned him, remember? And possibly from Ephesus, where he's just been recently. They followed him, and seeing him in the temple, they stirred up the crowd. Does that sound familiar? Same place, different time. And they laid hands on him. Okay, here we go. All that was promised by the Spirit is now about to come to pass, or at least begin to come to pass. Verse 28, crying out, men of Israel, help! This is them, the sour crew, right? This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. No, he's not. That's a lie. Just like it was with Jesus. Moreover, they add more to he, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. No, he didn't. That's another lie based on presumption. Verse 29, for they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, who potentially was an uncircumcised non-Jew who would not be allowed in the temple. They had previously seen Trophimus with him, Paul, in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. You see that? Do you know that presumption is the lowest form of wisdom? Be careful. Verse 30. Then all the city was stirred up. Sound familiar? So the whole city is now in an uproar. They literally drag Paul to the doors of the temple. They kick him outside and they shut the doors and proceed to violently beat him up. The word beat means to beat in, means to thump or to pummel with repeated blows with the hand or an instrument. It means to hammer, to strike, to smite, to wound. It gets so out of hand that the Roman soldiers get involved and end up putting Paul in chains. He is cuffed where? Just like Agabus said, hands and feet. And because of the violent crowd, he has to be carried back to the barracks. That's by the soldiers, followed closely by the aggressive mob who shout out in verse 36, away with him. So much for the non-offensive plan of action. Now listen to Paul's response to these circumstances. Verse 37. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Paul evidently speaks multiple languages. He will switch to Hebrew in a minute. The Roman officer says in verse 38, are you not the Egyptian, you know, the one who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins into the wilderness? The Jews accuse 
him of doing something that he didn't. The Roman tribune now thinks that he is someone that he is not. Verse 39, Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, let me go. Give me a blight, Bridget. Fam, it were, you see everybody getting rowdy out here. Why you come rush me? I put me in chains. He doesn't say that, does he? Paul says, I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. Now, why would Paul want to do a thing like that? It ain't the people that have bound him. I mean, they're about, they're just, they just done nearly, they nearly killed Paul. Now he wants to speak to them. Verse 40, and when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. New chapter. Acts 22, verse 1 to 5. Paul begins, as he speaks, by reminding his hearers, some who would have possibly known him personally, Paul reminds them of the fact that at one point in the past, he was just like them, doing just what they're doing. Albeit misdirected. See, Paul's patient. And Paul reminds them that, you know what? He had an apparent love for God. He had an apparent zeal for God's word. He'd been brought up as a disciple of the famous rabbi Gamaliel. And he had, he had been found binding, beating, and imprisoning Christians, even persecuting them to the death. And he's sharing this with them. I, was, I, I used to do exactly what you're doing to people that you are doing it to. I used to do this to Christians, and I, I'm one of them. And I'm trying to help you to see what's really going on here. And he says to them, if you don't believe me, you be there, you know what I'm saying? Your hands, like, maybe you broke your knuckle in my face a minute ago, and you weren't around when I was around. Because this is a number of years later, 15, maybe 20 years later this is. Maybe you weren't here when I used to be here. But you know what? Ask those who are around here standing next to you, verse 5. As the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. Ask them. Because it was from them I received my instructions. But then... One day, something very unusual happened to me, says Paul, verse 6. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, that's the middle of the day, the hottest and brightest part of the day, about noon, a great light from heaven shone around me. That light must have been bright for it to outshine the midday sun. Verse 7, and I fell to the ground. God licked me off. I got... God floored me in my arrogance. I'm going to persecute them Christians. Who do they think they are? God floored him. You think it's anything for God to floor a brother? I see you always doing that in school, trying to floor one another. God, God floored him. And on, on, while he was on the floor, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul. And again, I suspect it's repeated because the first time he said it, it was like, oh. it's like what, what's that? Is that somebody calling me? Saul, all oh, right, it is somebody calling me. Why are you persecuting the believers? Why are you persecuting all of these weak, insipid-looking Maybe unfashionable. These people who are willing to turn the other cheek, is it them that, that Jesus refers to being persecuted? See, when you're going through your difficult time, 
Very often you feel like the Lord has left you, right? You feel like you're on your own, innit? I mean, I know it's old and dry, but it's a really good poem. Footprints in the sand. And someone's walking and they can see two sets of footprints. And they're happy because, boy, the Lord's with me. I'm not on my own. And then two twos, all of a sudden, they hit up in a drama and everything just goes to the wall. And then when they look down, there's only one set of footprints. And in their presumption, they turn around and say, Lord, where was you when I was going through that difficult time? And the response could be, it's just a poem, but there is a great truth in it. It was like, boy, when you only saw one set of footprints, that was, that was actually me carrying you. You can be tempted to feel like when you're going through a difficult time, boy, especially when you ain't done nothing to deserve it, a lie? It's one thing when you deserve it. <laughs> it's one thing when I deserve it. But it's another thing when, boy, just trying to be faithful. Just trying to hold it down, Lord. And wow. See, Jesus says, So, why are you persecuting me? Because God is as close to his people, even to the point where he identifies with them. In their persecution. Verse 8, and I said, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth. I'm actually alive still. And he still is today. Whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. Paul begins to share with this maddening crowd his testimony. That's why he said to the tribune, Wait a minute, can I speak to the people, please? See, there's a more detailed account in Acts chapter 9, which we have looked at previously. So I'm just going to read through these verses, but without much in the way of comment. Verse 10, and I said, what shall I do, Lord? See, this is how you find out the will of God. What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus. The Lord could have told him, but he didn't. Sometimes the Lord, the way he's going to show you his will, ain't going to be the way that you necessarily expect it. I said I wasn't going to make no comment. And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see, says Paul, because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, he came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to what? To know his will. To see the righteous one and to hear the voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. That's what a witness does. You don't have to be an evangelist. A witness just says what they've seen and heard. This is what Jesus has done in my life. Nobody can take that away from you. Nobody can argue with you on that basis. You're just being a witness. You're just telling what you've seen and what you've heard. And he said, the God of my father has appointed you to know his will. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you've seen and heard. Verse 16, and now, why do you wait? Could have been said last night. Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins. It's not the baptism that washes away the sins. It's faith in Christ based on repentance. Repentance and faith. Calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance. And again, look, I saw him saying to me, make haste and get 
get out of Jerusalem this time. Quickly. Because they will not accept your testimony about me, says Paul. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. Lord, this is a great opportunity for me to speak to them. The Lord's like, duck out, verse 20. Remember, he's telling this to the crowd. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, Lord, was being shed. Lord, I was... I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. Lord, surely I've got something to say here. And the Lord said to me, go, for I will send you. My purpose ain't what you might think it is, Paul. What, just because you used to be a Pharisee? What, just because you know the law? It seems reasonable to you that I would have you stay here in Jerusalem, but that's not my will for you, Paul. I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Verse 22, up to this word, they listened to Paul as he's speaking to the crowd. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth. For it, it should not be, he should not be allowed to live. I thought about the New King James there. It is not fit that this man should live. Something like that. Verse 23, and as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, a little bit like what's going on in Libya, it says, verse 24, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined, oh my gosh, by flogging, more licks, to find out why they were shouting against him like this. That don't even make sense. Paul then... He doesn't complain, does he? Paul then in verse 25 through 30 sees an opportunity to exploit a loophole that will later see his life extended. Can you see how Paul takes opportunity not to murmur or complain about his plight, but sees it as an opportunity for the gospel? Undeterred by his difficult circumstances, Paul, knowing God's purpose for his life, disregards his own personal desires. Knowing that he could potentially lose his life, he goes to Jerusalem anyway. He doesn't get on a boat going in the opposite direction like Jonah. He turns his face into the wind. Right now, in the midst of your difficult circumstances, what are you most concerned about? You may not even be in difficult circumstances, and you have less reasonable excuse. What are you most concerned about? At this present moment in your life, is it God's will or is it your will? Why not follow the example of the 14 people who were baptized in Brixton last night? See, the Lord may not be calling you to do specifically what the Apostle Paul did, but He is calling you to do something. Do you know what it is? And are you willing to be obedient? Unlike Biggie, Paul is genuinely born again. Paul clearly understands the implications of life after death. And Paul certainly, for the right reasons, is ready to die. The question is, am I? The question is, are you? Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, thank you that for the past at least three weeks, four weeks since we've been in chapter 20, Listening to Tim a few weeks ago, listening to Esso, listening to Sean last week, 
And again, finding ourselves in this particular portion of the text is pretty consistent, Lord, that you're reminding us of the reality of being ready to die. And that is not necessarily physically, although it may mean that. What you desire is living sacrifices. Like Paul said, Father, help us to be able to see that for us to live ought to be Christ, not for ourselves. In the midst of us living for Christ, we might be blessed, we might be benefited in our careers, in our friendships, in marriage, in singleness. Lord, we, we might be benefited by living in the West with all the accoutrements and all the trimmings that we get to enjoy. Unlike those who I saw Red Nose Day, Lord, in one of the largest shanty towns, I think it was in Kenya or Uganda, Lord, we're blessed. Blessed, Lord. And the scripture says, to whom much is given, much is required. And Lord, I know for myself, I spend a lot of time moaning. I spend a lot of time murmuring. I spend a lot of time complaining, Lord. And the gospel is not my motive. It's not my focus. Yet, Lord, if, if we've been listening to what you've been saying to us, Lord, from the beginning of the year, you've been talking to us about death. I remember Pastor E. And, Lord, we've been reminded by multiple deaths. Lord, I've been to four funerals in four months. I've got another funeral coming up this month. Five funerals in five months. Six funerals within a year, if we can't. Last year, Zach, Lord, from every corner, from every angle, we've been reminded about death. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to see the glory that's wrapped up in us embracing the cross, us embracing difficulty, us embracing Deaf to our own desires, knowing that when we come home, every single one of our needs and ultimate desires are going to be completely, overwhelmingly met. And Lord, I think the, the, the problem is, Father, we, heaven ain't enough for us. We want the stuff down there. We want those relationships down there. We want those things. And again, Lord, it's not that these things are bad, but you may be calling some of us, Lord, to, to forego those things. Not necessarily all of us, but Lord, it comes down to knowing your will. And I pray that you would help us, help us to identify your will. Generally standard, Lord, your general will. Standard. But Lord, help us to get to that point where we're zoning in, Lord, beyond that in terms of your specific will for our lives. And that's going to come out of our faithfulness in the general will. Help us, Lord. Thank you for those who got baptized last night. Lord, thank you. They're doing, they're doing what, they, what, what you're showing them to do and they're being faithful, Lord. I pray that you'd help, help the rest of us, Lord. At our particular part of our journey in life, Lord, help us to, to be faithful, to, to do those things that you've called us to do and not to do. We realize we can only do this by the power of your spirit, Lord. Please help us, we pray, for Jesus' sake and for the sake of the gospel. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? <clears throat> And so now, brethren, I commend you to God 
and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you, even in your difficulty. Lord, shine in the midst of the darkness, I pray. You who spoke and light became, regardless of the darkness. And Lord, I pray that you'd just be gracious to us. Lift up your countenance upon us and give us your peace, Father, in the midst of our difficulties if we're going through difficult times, Lord. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest, remain, and abide with us all now and forevermore. Amen. If you need prayer for any reason, you may have heard that message and not been able to identify with it because you're not a Christian. Please let us pray with you. We can't save you, but Jesus can and he will if you'll repent and you'll believe on him. Believers, be encouraged. Amen. Amen. We're dismissed.